You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is part two of a conversation between Sarah Mock, Marzia Lanfranchi, Elizabeth Klein, and myself. It's the last episode of season four and of 2021. Manufactured will be back in the spring of 2022 with more content. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for updates about when exactly that will be. In case you missed part one, some brief introductions are in order. Sarah Mock, guest co-host of this conversation, is a freelance rural and agricultural writer and researcher. In her own words, and I quote, I grew up milking goats on a farm in Wyoming, studied economic development at Georgetown, and since then have worked alongside farmers and communities struggling to remain relevant in a changing world. Her newsletter is always a highlight of my week, full of nuanced human stories served with a strong side of humor. She's also author of the book Farm and Other F-Words. Check out the show notes for links to the book and to the newsletter. Which brings me to our guests, another pair of all-round inspiring humans, Marcia Lanfranchi and Elizabeth Klein, co-authors of the new report, Cotton, a case study in misinformation. Marcia is the intelligence director at Transformers Foundation, an independent sustainable fashion consultant and founder of Cotton Diaries, a solution-based platform for cotton sustainability. If this sounds familiar, that's because she's been a guest on the show before. To learn more about Marcia's work, her perspective, her thoughts, and Transformers Foundation, be sure to go back and check out episodes 55 and 56. Transformers Foundation is the unified voice representing the denim industry and its ideas for positive change. It was founded to provide a thus far missing platform to the jeans and denim supply chain and a central point of contact for consumers, brands, NGOs, and media who want to learn more about ethics and sustainable innovation in the industry. Elizabeth Klein is a freelance journalist who writes about environmental and labor issues in the global fashion industry. She's author of the critically acclaimed book, Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, and The Conscious Closet, A Revolutionary Guide to Looking Good While Doing Good. She's also played a big role in the Pay Up campaign, now known as the Pay Up Fashion campaign, which we've referred to often on this show for its important work on purchasing practices. She's also the advocacy and policy director at Remake. In part one of our chat, just in case you missed it, Marcia and Elizabeth explain a little bit about the report they've co-authored and why it was a project they wanted to take on. They broke down one of the myths about cotton that they debunk in the report and offer their take on how this myth came to be so widely circulated in the first place. We closed part one with some bigger questions, like what would make someone inclined to believe that the myth was true in the first place? What are the biases within information itself? How do we tell better, more nuanced stories? And who should be telling these stories? In this episode, part two of our chat, we talk about numbers. How should numbers be approached? How do we make space for context? How can we use numbers to tell more nuanced stories instead of flattened ones? This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. 
If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. You know, Elizabeth, I've heard you say that this paper has challenged your faith in numbers, um, which really resonated with me. And there's a sentence in the report, and I'm going to read it because otherwise I won't do it justice. Um, And it goes like this. It goes, we are, I quote, we are too obsessed with data. As this paper demonstrates, good data about fashion's environmental impact does exist. We just aren't using it correctly. We are favoring shocking, outdating, and simplified claims over accuracy, context, and nuance. Why are we so drawn to numbers, especially ones that attempt to simplify or exaggerate the world around us? And then it goes on to say, you go on to say, and yet numbers aren't neutral. Some scholars have pointed out that quantifying something is a social and even political act. As someone who as someone is making the decisions about what to measure, how to measure it, and what metrics to include and exclude. And so Like for me, when I was reading this report, I felt like there was sort of a tension because on the one hand, we want better data literacy. We're, you know, advocating for better facts, better information. And in the report itself, and actually this has come up in our conversation too, it was in a way like one of the first questions that Sarah asked was, you know, you've, you've, you've had to justify why people should trust the information that you're putting forward. But on the other hand, we're, you know, you're also saying that quantifying something is always a social or even political act, which I think is sort of what we're getting at when we talk about who's telling the story, what are they bringing to that story, what are their incentives. And so my question for you is, for is this report just about getting the facts right? Or is it also a social and pol- or political act? And if the latter, what kind of social or political act is it? I mean, the report is not trying to unravel people's faith in reality. You know, we, we're attempting to, to do the opposite in, in some ways, which is to say there, there, is, um, there are real experts out there. The scientific process is still a legitimate thing that we should all be using and respecting. Um, uh, but in terms of the way people approach numbers... Um, you know, I think probably a more helpful section to refer to is the paragraph that says that we assume that data transcends all human relations and stands alone with no outside influences. That's like a more tempered way to put what you just said. Um, Mm. So like data literacy would be, for example, coming to that 20,000 liters claim and not I'm not wanting people to look at that and being like, someone's lying to me. That's not, that's not helpful. But you might want to say, well, what was, what was their sample size? What countries were included? Um, what, when is the data from? Um, whose data is it? Is it coming from an NGO? Is it coming from government? Um, but numbers are so closely linked in our mind to objectivity and truth that we tend to not bring any sort of critical reflection to them. And actually, you know, I, um, uh, I also work part-time for an advocacy NGO for Remake. And we were talking, you know, we've been talking about the Cotton Report at Remake. And one of the things that our content gr- director told me is that all of our articles that have numbers in them 
people, they have the highest traffic because people think numbers are um, more credible than context and text, that they can't lie and that they don't lie. That is not, that is not, that is not reality, right? So critical data consumption means bringing the same set of questions and critical thinking that you would bring to encountering a quote or text. That's what we're trying to say. We're definitely not trying to unravel people's faith in numbers. I mean, our social act here, I guess, if I can, (laughs) with this paper, it was... um, because a, a social act, I guess, is something that you want your audience um, to perceive and um, you want them to lean onto an action or doing something and convince them. I guess to counteract what, um, what, um, what Elizabeth says in this paper, what our social act, that I think it's quite explicit and we're being transparent about it, is to do exactly that, is make sure that people think um, before they use the data and that don't take data at face value. And, um, and, but I think we've been very transparent about it and, and that's fine. Like biases, it's fine to, um, um, yeah, be transparent about it. One question I had, Marzia, like from working on the paper is like, so we replaced the 20,000 liters of water claim with basically two numbers one for irrigated water usage and one for rainwater usage in cotton. And ICAC actually doesn't provide a combined uh, statistic. And to me, I never understood, and this, this to me is an example of critical data consumption. I never understood why they didn't offer a combined number, you know, like a, a more like a footprint that shows like water and rain, uh, irrigated water and rainwater together. Yeah, and I think uh, Sarah can probably comment on that, but it's because there's a, there's a, if you understand the complexity of agriculture and the localism of different techniques that apply to different regions and cotton growing fields, you understand that using a global average figure in, um, without context and apply it to every geography, it means um, reducing the complexity and not um, really pushing people to, to, to lean into that gray area that we all want to um, lean, that we all want people to lean into. Because if Zambia, um, I think it's an example that we took, reports that they use zero liters of irrigated water on their fields. Is that a good number that we can use? Or they are, and, and if they use, I don't know, if they, they report to them one year because they have a huge um, rainstorm, they use, they, it's reported to be 14,000 liters. Is that a good or bad number? What what is this number yeah. telling you? Um, is that doesn't tell you anything about if they are um, um, having system put in place and government mechanism to to conserve that rainwater to to better use it to apply it for other um, 
to, for other purposes, for drinking water, to filter it. What, what does it tell you that number? Nothing, I think. And the zero liters of irrigation water, it may tell you that, is that, is that good? Or it may tell you that they, they, they cannot adopt um, better um, irrigation water efficiency programs because uh, as, we, as we mentioned in the paper, cotton has a critical uh, 40 critical days where it's flowering and then blossoming for which it needs water. And if it doesn't have it during these 40 critical days, right. then the, the farmer may lose their crop. So like that's 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 an example of, I think, why it, couldn't, it, it shouldn't be combined. It can be combined just for governments to realize more or less where we are heading, where we're going to influence maybe some... Uh, um, some some analysis on climate change, but it shouldn't be used at consumers' level or brands' level to make decision. I think, personally, but that's uh, that's my view. I don't know, Sarah. Uh, I'm I'm really like curious to hear y- your perspective. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way to talk about this that doesn't like completely. I I, I love uh, what you said, Elizabeth, about like not not trying to like. D- destroy people's belief in numbers or statistics um, because statistics are really important and we should care about them. But I think it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, I feel like it's some amount of just like understanding, like what is actually the point of the numbers. And, you know, I think of, uh, we intuit a lot of points, points of statistics. And I think that the, the 20,000 liters, again, is a great example of that. We intuitively assume that we don't want to use water that like, it, it's, it almost is like this weird assumption that like at the core of the earth, there's like a single well of water that we all draw all of <laughs> our, all our water from. And if something is using too much of our universal single hold of water, then that's a bad thing. But that's yeah. just not how water works, right? Some places there's a lot of water. Some places there's not water. The difference between growing cotton in Georgia in the United States and in the Colorado River Basin in Nevada, very different, very different places to grow cotton, very different demands on the systems that they're around, very different just like context in general. And so in that way, like, I don't know, I think that there's a good question to be asked about like when global figures ever really make sense. When you're aggregating over too big a period or too big too big a period of time, too big a geography, like local context matters. Um, And so, you know, what can you learn from an even even from the like six thousand liter number? I don't know. Not much beyond beyond the number itself. It, It tells you like exactly what it tells you, and nothing else in terms of like it doesn't say that cotton takes six thousand liters of water does not tell you about its environmental impact necessarily. It does not tell you about its contribution to its local economy. It does not tell you about the cost in terms of like ecological health. It does not tell you anything about biodiversity. We intuit all those things though. We intuit that something, that a crop that's too demanding on water has an alternative. Could be, could be something better. Could be like a wild system. Could be, you know, something else. Even though that's not necessarily true. Um, and I think that that is a key, you know, a, a part of this kind of data literacy conversation is just understanding that data is you is very, very useful, usually at like a pretty limited thing. Um, and, 
you know, I think there's also just, yeah, I think that's about like in a, it's kind of about understanding bias, but it's more about just understanding kind of like the way that our brains work and how, how good we are at filling in blanks with like patterns that we understand, even if those filling in the, we, we filled them in incorrectly. We've made a bunch of assumptions that like weren't actually true in the way that we thought. And I think agriculture is a huge place for this because despite the fact that it is a very complex system, we all feel like we, we all have some personal experience with hunger, with, deprivation with expense with like visible with like you know resource scarcity even if it's just like i know that i turn off the water when i brush my teeth so how dare like you know cotton use so much water that must be a bad thing if like i have to turn off the water when i brush my teeth then why are we growing a crop that is you know using 20 20 000 liters of water how long would i have to run my sink to use twenty thousand liters of water we intuitively put everything in a context we can understand and like everything we do we compare every number we see or piece of data we come into contact with we have to compare to ourselves yeah it took like 20 years for this narrative that cotton is inherently unsustainable and water thirsty like you you can go back through and look at uh, the way the media talked about cotton 20 years ago compared to today and it was just like this layers and layers of misinformation like built up over time to where now people the 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 connection is water uh, cotton uses too much water uh, there's not enough water on the planet and therefore cotton is unsustainable. So it's just been this like web of misinformation that's unfolded over time. But also like this uh, conversation that we're having about system boundaries in scientific studies, like what is being measured, where and how. This is exactly the conversation more people should be having because that's what scientists do too. They're constantly debating, wait, wait like how did you design your study And then, you know, through the peer review process, they'll say, well, okay, here are flaws in the way you did your study. Someone else will do a similar study. And every, you know, the evolution or understanding of a process evolves. It gets closer and closer to the truth. Like, I don't think a scientist would ever say, I'm measuring the truth. But through iterations of research and studying, we get closer and closer to some sort of reality instead of further away, which is what we're currently doing. (laughs) which I think was like, that was the question running through my mind when I was hearing all of this is like, okay, so then how do we use data? Like if we're sort of in agreement that, you know, this, you know, the scientific process is something that, you know, we should protect and support. And if, you know, numbers are a critical part of the story, but maybe, you know, have a specific place or have a specific use, which maybe isn't quite as, um, I don't know what the word is, but like, I, maybe to put it in simple language, you know, should always be taken with a grain of salt. Um, then like, how could we use data to support more nuanced storytelling rather than flattening it? How could we talk about water uh, in a way and cotton in a way and, and sort of you know, use data in a way to sort of tell a more robust story. I mean, I'll give a good example. Did you guys see the cotton tote bag crisis story in the New York Times? Whew. Oh, my Lord. Uh, So um, that's a a good example because that was um, 
uh, built around this uh, life cycle assessment done by the Danish government, where it was like measuring, um, you know, the environmental impact of different kinds of um, uh, grocery bags, which is a really important conversation because everybody's banning plastic bags. Like, well, what should we be using instead? Um, um, the better story would have been, you know, about the nuance and the trade-offs between different kinds of bags. Um, the challenge for a journalist would be how do you tell that story in an interesting way that isn't just clickbait that's trying to make people feel bad about switching to a cotton tote bag. But if you look into that LCA and people started writing all sorts of responses to the cotton tote bag article, what what came out of that was like, okay, so the, the number was like, you would have to reuse an organic cotton tote 20,000 times for it to have the same environmental impact as a plastic bag. Okay, that's a kind, that is the kind of, that is a perfect example of a number where you should be like, wait, what? And like, do, do a little bit of digging, do a little bit of digging, you know? And because once, once I started looking into the LCA and like looking at what other people wrote about it, um, um, first of all, they were uh, making the assumption that organic cotton is 30% less efficient than conventional. Therefore, it uses 30% more of all resources, including water. Well, we just had this very long conversation in this, in this talk today. Like some farmers don't use any irrigated water. Some uh, cotton farmers use a lot. So right there, that assumption is just wrong. Um, and then once I like started digging even more and reading more about it, the 20,000 um, uses came from just one impact indicator. Like it was like ozone depletion. And that number, stay with me for a second. I know this is like really in the weeds, but that number was based on the assumption that all cotton is irrigated and the electricity is drawn from like natural gas. So all of these assumptions were built into this figure that were really misleading. And there were, you know, the, the numbers could have been, um, uh, or the study could have been in a different way and come up with like completely different figures. Um, and actually some people started to look at it and they were like, well, actually if this would have been done differently, it would have turned out that like organic cotton bags only need to be used like a hundred times to meet the environmental impact of a plastic bag. And also the reason why we switched is because plastic bags, it's marine litter. Like it was first a very specific environmental problem, right? That was like supposed to be solved by switching. Um, I would actually want to hear from Sarah maybe, because that, that's an example of like, the sexy story that got a lot of hits was your cotton tote bag is destroying the environment. And then everybody wants to read that and share it and like make every, you know, make each other feel bad. But like, could a, could a good story that got read and widely circulated that was more nuanced have been written instead? Oh, that is a tough question because man, there are so many of those stories. Do uh, uh, like a two years ago, maybe someone did like a story about how much pesticide is in your Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> Even though like someone like looked again, it was again, a similar, like it was one study, someone looked closer in the study and it's like, it's like point 
zero 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 five nine six percent of of your Ben and Jerry's is pesticides. So it's like literally like you're more likely to have like any food, like equally as likely to have any food, like because you ate it outside and there was like pesticide in the air and like one molecule landed on like your hamburger and now it is as contaminated as your Ben and Jerry's. We never talk about like the trade-offs. We never, which is what this conversation is actually about, right? Like all these conversations are about. The option is not cotton or no cotton and like everything will be the same. We just won't have cotton. It's like, if we don't have cotton, then we're going to have other things. And so like, let's talk about, you know, fossil-based um, mm-hmm. materials as part of our like fashion sector. Or let's talk about what it looks like if just like there's a whole lot less fabric in the world and like people don't have access, like the cost goes way up. You know, it's easier to make a stand people love a stand. People love to have a, to have a, you know, a hill to defend and to say like, listen, maybe like I eat meat or I live in a high, highly impactful place or I, you know, have a lot of square footage or whatever. I have whatever environmental impact I have, but I don't kill the world with my cotton bags or like, but I, I don't use whatever I, I don't eat meat or I don't, whatever your, you know, thing that, you know, I'm going to ignore my contribution through all my other life choices. But on this one thing, I'm going to be the person mm-hmm. who like holds the line and I'm going to make the right choice and the quote unquote right choice. I'm going to make the good choice. I'm going to be virtuous in this space. And I think that there is just a, um, you know, it takes some real cognitive dissonance to hold that space to say like in 99% of my life, I'm not, I'm going to ignore my failure to do the quote unquote right thing. But in this one space, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the quote unquote right thing. And I'm going to shame everyone else for not doing it. A, a fact presented without its context can be as problematic as a lie. Yeah. Yeah. There was a quote that I found very like um, mm-hmm. recently um, after the publishing of the paper, and it was by Maya Angelou, the um, civil rights activist. And it says, sorry, I'll read it. Um, Do the best you can until you know better, then you know better, then when you know better, do better. And that's like, for me, concisely. <laughs> say what I what my learning have been during this paper I came with uh, a certain background and a certain bias uh, I think and I I think I open as humbly as possible within stretching my limits to the to the learning that was about to come and I think I I I've, I've seen Elizabeth Elizabeth and myself um committing to um, to to acknowledge our mistakes and our shortcomings, and I think that humble side of everybody should be like more <laughs> um, trained, so that we can we can receive new information and change our minds when we have new information coming, so that we don't just use a, a statistic or a claim or a data to back to back up what we are already doing, but we can evolve. And so, and it's so exciting, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's scary at, at, at first, but then it's exciting, I think. And I would just add, like, you know, I've always been a person who has had strong 
political beliefs my whole life. Like I have a degree in political philosophy um, and went into journalism. Um, So for me, you know, I think the takeaway is that misinformation has a high, steep and growing cost. You know, we saw an insurrection in Washington based on the notion that our election um, was fraudulent. And um, I mean, wars have literally been started because of censorship, propaganda and misinformation. And the difference today is that misinformation is not coming from our government. It's coming from, you know, social media, you know, uh, digital media. It's coming from different places, but the consequences are just as dangerous. Um, so to me that, that was the big takeaway. Like, this is not, this is not a joke. (laughs) Like it's something that we should all be really concerned about. Um, and even if you are a person who is ideological by nature, as I am, like facts matter, the truth matters, and we all have an obligation to, um, try to use the best, most credible information whenever and however we can. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that.